committed to interviewing subjects uh, outside my personal network and or comfort zone in 2018. Uh, today, talking to Dr. Bob Uslander, the medical director and founder of Integrated MD Care in Del Mar. Now, Dr. Bob, as, uh, as his patients refer to him, is one of only a handful of physicians in the state of California that offers uh, aid in dying services. Now, I know the subject's heavy. Since, uh, since June 9th, 2016, California's End of Life Options Act has made it easier for people with uh, terminal illnesses to choose when they want to die. But uh, needless to say, it's still a controversial subject for, for many families, friends, medical providers. When I was first hit up by Dr. Bob and his team, I actually punted. I was like, eh, not feeling it right now. I'm sticking to my personal network. But now that I'm committed in 2018 to expanding beyond, I said, uh, they hit me up again here this year. I said, sure, let's do this. Because uh, at the end of the day, Dr. Bob's primary goal is just to make sure people are more comfortable with the concept of dying. And that is actually a subject that uh, I'm not, <laughs> it, I mean, you can hear me stammering right now. It, it's not the most comfortable subject for me, which is why I was really uh, intrigued to sit down with Dr. Bob and learn more about this subject here. Before we get to Dr. Bob, do you want to thank our sponsors, Tory Holistics, who have been with us for over a year, rated the number one not rated, rated, <laughs> rated the number one dispensary collective in San Diego, right in Sorrento Valley, serving uh, everywhere, but uh, primarily PB, the beach areas, uh, North County, Tory Holistics is your spot, and online at toryholistics.com, and uh, they'll get you taken care of. South Coast Surf Shops, always a pleasure working with you. Uh, check them out. Five locations between PB and OB online at southcoast.com. Family operations since 1974. They're the best. And finally, I want to uh, also thank new sponsor, uh, Scooter Farm. The Scooter Farm. Pro scooters and accessories in Claremont. The Claremont area right down the road from the uh, Claremont Skate Park. My, uh, my kids are scooter heads, okay? As much as I tried to get my son as an old school skater, you know, not like I was friggin' part of the Dogtown uh, Z-Boys crew, but I did grow up with a skateboard, and uh, my son has plenty of skateboards at his disposal, but has taken a liking to the scooter and uh, favors the scooter, and I took him down to the scooter farm, ended up knowing the crew down there, Bo, and uh, signed him up. They're on board, and uh, I couldn't ask for a better partner than Bo and his team. I'll tell you, the way they take care of the kids down there, if you've got a scooter kid in your house, or I'll tell you, they've got adult scooters there too, but uh, head on down to Scooter Farm and tell them, you, Cantori, you, sent you whatever you need to do. Same thing at South Coast, but uh, head on into the Scooter Farm or check them out online at thescooterfarm.com. It, uh, the place is run like an old school skate shop and my son reps the place. He loves it and, uh, happy to have them on board. Okay. Let's get to it. Heavy one today. We'll do a lighter one next week. I promise. Dr. Bob Uslander. So you help people die? Uh, sometimes. When I hear the subject, the, the first thing I think of is being a kid and that controversial figure, Dr. Kevorkian, and how everyone talked about Dr. Kevorkian, how he was so polarizing. And what was your, uh, what was your kind of take on it? What was what was the impression you were, were left with around Dr. Kevorkian? I supported him. Okay, but with a sense of controversy knowing that that was that that existed a little bit out there a little bit but that was also indicative of the time what time was that i'm thinking 20 years ago 90s okay yeah and uh how much has progressed since then a lot in some places and nothing in other places but here in california in california so he was early, he was part of a movement early on and he was very controversial and and very like you say polarizing there are people who think of him as a saint uh, and there are people who think of him as Satan, right? You know, it's, and it kind of depends on on your perspective, your upbringing, your religious uh, leanings. Uh, but since since the time that he was out doing his work in the world, there have uh, been legal channels 
through which people can take advantage of that. It's been slow um, coming, and the majority of states in, in our country still don't allow physician-assisted death or death with dignity. Uh, but many states have bills that are in place and legislation. And, and so we are moving in that direction, which is a positive. And, I'm, and I feel grateful to be in a, living in a state that does support uh, people and having a, a peaceful and dignified death. But we still have work to do. Yeah, based on the stigmas? Well, based on the stigmas and based on the fact that right now it's a pretty limited group of people who get to take advantage of it. How who, so? Well, most people are you know, ignorant of the realities of, of this law. Uh, it's been in existence for a year and a half, and many people in the public and even, surprisingly, many people in healthcare don't understand it. It's so interesting that you say that, because when somebody reached out to me, I was like, how long has that been legal? I thought people would travel to, like, Colorado or different states. What were the different states that people would travel the to? The first one was Oregon. Okay. And Oregon uh, passed their death with dignity law back about 20 years ago. Okay. In, in, uh, in 2008, Washington State became the second state. Currently, in addition to Oregon, Washington, uh, California, Vermont, Washington, D.C., and Colorado. Oh, Colorado okay. passed after California. Uh, and Montana has a, has a law that is somewhat um, unclear, but they do have protection. Uh, it, it's not quite as uh, kind of dialed in as the other states that have clear laws about it. And again, there's legislation in New York and in Massachusetts, and so other states will sort of come online. But there's always the risk that that the federal government could come down and make it, uh, you know, a, a make it illegal from the federal standpoint. It sounds always, a lot like another industry. Yeah, yeah. It, there's well, when you think about the states, the progressive states, right, Cal are the first Washington, to jump on them. Oregon. Right, Colorado. Colorado. No coincidence there. No, I don't think so. Now, what were you doing two years ago? So two years ago, I had just started my practice. And it was, uh, I started a, meta, a practice called Integrated MD Care. And the goal is to take great care of people. Is I recognize there's huge gaps in healthcare uh, that people fall into. Most of the time, they're, un, they're, they're unaware of the gaps that, that are kind of looming. And when people get really ill and they're dealing with complex illnesses and in and out of the hospital and uh, having more challenges, they fall into this place where no one's coordinating things and no one's really, uh, really invested in their well-being. Sure. And so I stepped into this, uh, started a practice where we have physician, nursing, nurse practitioners, and then a whole host of therapists who are there to support people and help provide whatever they need to be safe, comfortable, um, and receive appropriate care. So, and we do that outside of the insurance model. We kind of bring in whatever services people are able to have through their insurance, and then we add on top of it what they need. And did you start this knowing that eventually no. these laws would go into effect that would no. you be able to train? No. No. So when I started my practice two years ago, I had, I knew that the law in California had been signed by Governor Brown, and that at some point in the future, it would actually take effect. But there was this long waiting period. And, uh, and I anticipated that that would be a, that's a positive thing. I, I anticipated that I would have patients who would be looking for that option, and I would learn what I needed to learn and support them, because I was very open to you know, I really believe in freedom of choice and people being able to determine their own fate. Uh, and I anticipated that other doctors would do the same, that they would take care of their patients. And when their patients had a request, now that it was legal, they would help them, um, you know, go through that. And June 9th, 2016, the law went into effect and my phone started ringing from people who had been f trying to find a doctor who would help them. Really? It actually started ringing before the law passed because people were knew that the date was coming. They were anxious, they were ready, and they were afraid that if they didn't do it, then they would lose the opportunity. But what I, what I discovered is that most physicians, even though most physicians personally are in support of, of uh, laws like the End of Life Option Act, they don't want, either they don't want to or they are not allowed to. So it's probably, I would think it's probably about 
half and half of the doctors who aren't willing to support patients and going through the End-of-Life Option Act, half of them probably work for age organizations, groups, hospitals um, that don't allow them to. Right. That say this is, we, we, we don't, even if they, even if the organizations support it from a philosophical standpoint, they don't want their doctors to participate for various reasons. Yeah, I get it. And then there's a bunch of doctors who just don't get understand it. They don't, they're uncomfortable with it. They're, they think it's just too much work, too much time is going to be taken, and they don't have a way to get compensated for that. So they just don't deal with it. And isn't there also the philosophy out there that you keep these people alive and you're plugging more money into the system? I'm not sure I would say that's a philosophy. Or theory. <laughs> theory, sure. It's, it, it's probably it's a philosophy of the people who are, you know, who run the insurance companies sure. and the companies that benefit financially. That clearly is is the case. It makes more sense to but keep among these the people. Right. But among the medical establishment, it's more, they're uncomfortable, you know, the people, doctors are uncomfortable having the conversations. Hell yeah. They're uncomfortable uh going there they don't, there's no training there's a lot for of that. layers too man because it also extends sure it's that person's choice but there's also an extended family involved there's the family involved there's questions of you know there's always questions of competency there's questions of whether somebody qualifies based on their diagnosis so it, it's a fairly complex thing which is why now that we're like a year and a half into it and I've become sort of the the Southern California, expert kind of go-to person. Yeah, I was going to ask how many people are doing this. Very few are very few are doing it in a way that is um, where they're where they're open to allowing patients to come and establish a relationship with them specifically around this. Got it. Uh, there are some physicians in practice who will assist their patients uh, or there's organizations that like hospital systems that have a a protocol and they have a physician who can kind of guide other physicians on how to support patients. But what I've discovered is those are often, uh, they often take a lot of time and there's layers that people have to go through and sometimes they don't have time. When you said initially the phone started ringing before the law even went into effect, tell me a little bit about these people that were calling. Who are these people? Yeah, well, that's the, and that's the, the stories are the, are the, the part of it that are so enthralling. Um, and the first person who I took care of was a 63-year-old uh, woman with ALS, you know, Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm -hmm. So she has had a, a very happy, productive, successful life. She was working as a massage ther therapist at a really nice spa and had lots of friends, had, wasn't married. But a couple months before that, she was on vacation in Mexico with some friends and they went to wake her up in the morning and she wasn't breathing. And that was the first, the first um, anyone knew about her illness. It weakened the muscles and she was kind of went into respiratory arrest. So they ended up metaflighting her back to San Diego and she had this rapidly progressive disease that was robbing her of her ability to function. Mm. Her, she was losing the ability to walk, to use her arms, swallow, her breathing was, was compromised. And so she knew that this was quickly, it was moving fast, faster than most cases of ALS, and that within a matter of weeks or months, she would be unable to breathe on her own, to swallow, to you know, function independently. She would lose the ability to move. And she did, that wasn't okay with her. And she, and she had options. She could have, she could have gone on and had a surgical airway put in, a feeding tube, and been kept alive. Uh, like Stephen Hawking, and there's there's people who 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 choose that route. That wasn't her path, and she wanted support in being able to um, have a peaceful exit. So she asked her doctor; he wasn't willing. She asked a primary care doctor who she'd seen before. She went through I don't know ten, fifteen doctors who who were unwilling to to support her. It's amazing. Yeah. And, then, and, and so and this went on for weeks and weeks and weeks until finally somebody contacted me. And I said, well, I'll meet with you. I don't know much about this yet, but I'll meet with you and I'll learn what I need to learn. And, and, and it was a beautiful thing. And we met and she made it very clear and she clearly qualified. We, we met again after the required 15 days. I 
got the uh, consulting physician uh, lined up for So her. there is obviously a whole there's a pr- process. There's a process, which is pretty straightforward, and it can be done fairly streamlined, but it's, it's usually not because people get involved in these big systems that have that, that have their own process and their own policies. Sure. And a lot of times they make people go through mental health, evaluate, you know, see psychiatrists or ethicists. So with this with this woman who I took care of, this first patient, she she quickly got what the prescription that she was seeking, and I was there with her uh, and and a group of her friends who created this beautiful ritual ceremony with uh, you know Tibetan bells it was just a it was a lovely experience and chanting and she just had this incredibly peaceful exit which is exactly what she wanted and what her her friends were able to help provide for her sure and and at that point i was sort of i was really um drawn in so how do you determine whether or not someone qualifies and my reason why i'm asking is i hear all the time you know, especially my age, as I'm in you know, middle age now, and I'll hear from friends all the time. I've got a friend right now who's fighting for his life. Are there situations where you get that initial diagnosis and find out you're stage four lung cancer? And you know what? I don't want to go through this shit. Give you a call and let's just get this done now. I mean, is that kind of is a scenario like? Does that happen? That that, that does happen. That's one of the scenarios. And as a matter of fact, yesterday afternoon I had a conversation with a guy who has who is almost exactly that situation. He's 54. Oh. I'm 55. He has stage 4 terminal lung cancer. Oh, you're killing me. But bad, he's bad not pun. but he's not um he's not ready to take the medication. He's ready to get the um security that comes along with knowing that you have an out, with knowing that if if things get to the point where it's intolerable, mm. you're you're unwilling to to go on knowing what what the future holds that you have this option available to you. So that's what he's looking for. And that's what a lot of people that are looking for. That makes perfect sense to me. But then there are other people who, by the time they, they reach me, they, they have either been working towards getting access to the prescription or are just at the point where things are happening so quickly for them that they're very anxious to get it and they want it as soon as possible. Right. Uh, and, there, I would say it's probably about evenly divided. The people who are anxious want the medication and want to be able to take it as soon as they're able to versus the people who are wanting to have it so that when things change for them and they get to a point where they're no longer, where no, life no longer has enough quality or is, is too challenging that they can take it. That would be the side I'm on. Yeah, well, but things could change for you tomorrow. Truth, which is true. <laughs> right. So here's. So let me just quickly tell you how it works. This is the End of Life Option Act that was that became law in California, and it was modeled after the law in Oregon, and the law in Washington is similar. Uh, an adult resident of California who is competent to make decisions has a terminal diagnosis, meaning that they have an illness and they're a life expectancy of six months or less, mm-hmm. can request from an attending physician uh, a prescription for medicine that if they take it, it will end their life peacefully. They have to make two verbal requests of the attending physician, and they have to be separated by at least 15 days. So if, if you were to make that request and you qualified based on your illness and being competent, which is questionable at this point. Um, <laughs> I won't argue that. If you were to make a request today, in 15 days, we can meet again and you make a second request. And that request is is to be made directly to me in private so that I'm clear that you're doing this of your own volition, that no one's trying to coerce or influence you. The other requirements are that a, you, you have to submit a written request that's signed and witnessed by two people. And a, another physician, a second independent physician, has to also assert that you're competent, that you have a terminal illness, and that you understand the consequences of what you're asking. They don't have to be supportive of it. They don't do any. They, they don't actually take any other. It's that action. second opinion. It's that second person to just you know to there's checks and balances. I couldn't just say yes, you qualify right. because you're asking me, and you know you want my help. Some another physician independently has to also be willing to say that you qualify. 
So, so there's, there's a value in that. Um, once those requirements are met, the two, the two visits with an attending physician spaced at least 15 days apart, the written request and the consulting physician form a prescription for medication can be sent to a pharmacy. And there's only a few pharmacies that I would work with that are able to get the appropriate medications. And then you have access to that and can have the prescription filled or not. If you have the prescription filled, it can uh, be delivered and you have the option of taking it or not. So there's never, there's never a requirement. People are never forced to do anything. It's like an insurance policy, and they have an option available So do you to have them. to be present when they no. take... Wow. So there's no requirement that anybody uh, be present with the patient. They certainly highly recommend that another adult, responsible adult, is present. They don't... They, it's really... Uh, the, the physician is... It, it's on me to really counsel and guide people as to what their requirements are. They shouldn't take it alone. They shouldn't take it in a public place. Uh, and there are, they, we do need to let them know that there are other options like ongoing palliative care, hospice care, being you know, sedated uh, to unconsciousness if symptoms get intolerable. Right. So all the other options that people have available to them. So there's no requirement that a medical person is there. The majority of patients that I've supported and um, helped get a prescription, I've been with. Yeah, it's part of my. I, I highly recommend it to people, unless they're really, really private, and they clearly just don't want anybody else around. It's been tremendously helpful for the for the families that are helping patients um, go through this to have somebody who who knows what they're doing, who's been there, who can kind of explain the process and explain what to anticipate to help them just help them through it and just be a, a supportive presence. And what is that, um, what is that process just like? Is, is it, is it ceremonial? Is it, is it a joyous occasion? Is it a sad occasion? Does it, is it a matter of a case by case? Totally case by case. Every, every individual is different. Most of the time, the patient, the person who's going to be taking the medication, is just is ready. They're they're determined. They're resolute. They know they're doing the right thing, and the challenge for them is usually getting their family on board, getting them to be agreeable, to comfortable with the con- with the idea. And once they once they get through that, and and I often am involved in that process as well having conversations with the family members, helping them understand what, what's going to happen, what the alternatives are, what the, what the default future would potentially look like. Right. Um, and also to just be a proponent of this because I've seen enough people uh, end their lives this way and it, it couldn't get any more peaceful. There's yeah. just no way. People say that the, the goal, the, their, their ideal death would be just going to sleep and dying in their sleep. And that's what this is. That's what happens. You <laughs> right? fall asleep, and and in a short time later, you die. Kind of like my dog. We recently went through that. Yeah. So it's as it's as beautiful and, and peaceful as that. So how each patient and family sort of set up the 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 yeah, it time, depends on the it situation. Depends. I've had you know I had a ninety five year old lady whose family had a hard time initially, and they really it really took took her a long time to get them to support her, but they they did. And they ended up spending like two days together, like 10, four kids and grandkids and extended family. And they just had this incredible two-day retreat together beautiful. before this, before the mom and grandma took the medication. And the day that she took it, it was a Sunday morning and I went there and I remember I, I was a little late because there was traffic from a, from a, a triathlon that was going on. And she was actually mad at me for being 10 minutes late to her. <laughs> to her party and but once i got there everyone was just sitting in a circle around her she was like the queen holding court in her recliner and she just no fuss no ceremony just took the medication she died about you know 25 minutes later and it was a pretty in- intense period everyone was pretty quiet for initially and then everyone just kind of started talking and telling some of the stories that they shared in the day couple days before and it was just a really comfortable time and then she she took her last breath, and everyone stood up and gave her a standing ovation. 
Wow. It's like for two solid minutes, just applause for the life that she had led and the way that she Went chose out. to go out. So, wow. So that's, you know, that's one. Um, yeah, I want to hear on the flip side, though. I, 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 the critics out there who say you're playing God just to get right to it. I yeah. Mean, do, do you have to deflect that? Is that still out there? Are you still, do you battle family members? So clearly there's opposition. There are, from, from a religious standpoint, there are, I'm sure, physicians. I know there are physicians, and there are very prominent physicians who support people at end of life who are vocally opposed to physician-assisted death, you know, aid in dying, uh, state claiming that, that we can always manage symptoms. We can always take care of the things that people are trying to escape from. Uh, and while I think, I think that's true, you can always, like sedate somebody into unconsciousness and put them on so much medication and uh but that's still us doing something to them right right that's not giving people choice and anyway i'm kind of diverging i get your there, point there, though yes there, I agree. there are there there is opposition and there's probably pretty vehement strong opposition interestingly i haven't experienced any negative comments directly to me i haven't actually read anybody being critical of me, I'm sure that my I know my critics are out there. I know they're there. I just haven't. It hasn't had an impact on me personally. Like no one's coming to my office and yeah, and protesting. No or anything. And, no, no. and I'm not seeing anything negative. And part of it is because I, I'm I'm assuming part of it is this is not my entire focus. This is a part of my practice that that I didn't go out and seek. It it became another obvious unmet need out in the community and right. my goal is to support people and to fill these gaps and and this one was huge and now that I'm in this world I I see that the gap is even bigger because there's a lot of people who are ready to die who are ready to be done and are struggling every day but they don't qualify they yeah. don't have access to this so based on what because I know people again this because I'm sure there's a very gray zone when it comes to mental health related issues of course because how if somebody does have a history and they're making these decisions, does it get more complicated? It can. To be honest, I haven't had to. Re I haven't felt the need to refer any of the patients that I've seen for um, the aid and dying process to a mental health specialist. That is part of the requirement. I, right. didn't, I didn't actually um, say that. There's a couple other things and when we go back to the requirements, one of them is if there's a concern by either the attending physician or the consulting physician that the patient um, has a mental health condition that is influencing their ability to make a decision, right. then they need to be referred Got it. To a, for a mental health evaluation. So I've had patients who have a history of depression. I have patients who have had a history of uh, you know, bipolar disorder. But when in my conversations with them, in my assessment, that didn't have any impact. Yeah. They were dying. They were, yeah. These are these are people who were dying. Yeah. It's not it's not like a questionable situation. This isn't someone coming in who said they had a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there, you know, and if if somebody, I had a patient recently who came to me who has a history of multiple suicide attempts. He just has he's been depressed his whole life. He's never felt happy, and for a long time he's felt like life does not hold enough value. Well, now he has terminal lung cancer, Whoa. stage four lung cancer. So there is a question of it. So he's, he's wanting to this decision. He kind of feels like now it's, this is now he has the, the, the option, the right. And he's, he, and he's tr correct. He does have the option, right? He has stage four lung cancer and it will end his life pretty quickly. One, you know, one way or the other, whether he attempts treatment or not. Um, so in that case, I probably will have a mental health specialist sure. weigh in on it just to be, just to, uh, you know, be thorough. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that they will agree that he understands what he's asking for. So we were actually talking also a little bit about the people who don't, who don't qualify. Right. And, um, and then, and that, that's a challenge that, that there's a huge group there of people who are just, they're, they're old and, you know, they're in their nineties or over a hundred and they're they're severely limited. They're in pain. They have other chronic conditions that are that are making life miserable for them. And we don't really have a good solution for them. Now, did you have to do any type of 
spiritual searching within yourself or just for you to make this decision, if that makes I, sense. No, totally. It makes total sense. And I, and so there wasn't like a formal, any kind of a formal no. thing. I, I, I've been sort of on my own spiritual journey for a long time and doing my, my own I'm always sort of processing and look and, and looking for the um, you know the I guess the philosophy that that feels right for me, and I I truly believe that there is more after we die. I don't believe that that our when we die, our our journey is over. I don't have any any real fear of of dying. I've I've. Uh, I went through personal experience with death um, in in the last few years that has helped to educate me a bit more about this, provide me a lot more insight about what family members go through and what's possible. Mm. Both my mom and dad in the last few years both died of lung cancer, and they were here in San Diego, and I was with them participating in their care. And really, watching my father, his end-of-life experience and how he handled it, how he approached it, how it it unfolded— uh, gave me this sort of empowered and inspired me to want to help other people have something equal to that. Mm. It was like, in my mind, kind of call it the gold standard of a death. It was. It couldn't have been more peaceful, more controlled. It was. It was really as difficult as it was to lose him. Knowing that he had such a gentle exit was was phenomenal. And so that that gave me this kind of. Um, fired me up to to try to help other people have that kind of experience. I'm still really focused on giving people a better quality of life and helping them stay alive longer because that's part of what our practice is, is taking care of people at the, you know, just the late stages of life. But my comfort level with the whole concept of death, um, my, I guess my commitment to really helping people not be afraid and not have to struggle his drives drives me to keep doing this is it is it emotionally difficult yeah it's i've been with probably 60 people and they they're coming more frequently but just in the last few days i've talked to i think four or five Damn. people who and because people are getting our information they're getting my name from people from social workers from other physicians sure and they're they're recognizing that that this is it, um i think people are starting to trust that there's a a better way of going through this process than just allowing the the typical medical system yeah. to take it on cuz it's interesting cuz i'm thinking immediately when you say that of my grandfather who uh was my everything and he went through the system as you would go through the system and to this day, my mom and my sister both struggle with uh, seeing my grandfather at the end and in these certain positions when he was in hospice and what have you. Because I held him in such a high regard and he was such a proud man, he, I know he never wanted me to see him in that state, so I never did. And I was at peace with that and mm-hmm. had my final words before he went into hospice. But I don't know the details, but no, but if your mom and your sister are they're horrified if to they're this struggling day. with this, my response to that is he deserved better. I agree. He deserved better and they deserve better. So if we, a lot of what, a lot of our, the focus is on, on making the process nicer and more comfortable and dignified for the patient, the byproduct of that. And, and a big part of our focus is that we allow the loved ones, the family members, to go f- to go on with their lives feeling like they did everything they could, yeah. everything in their power to make that transition as, as peaceful and gentle as possible. And we're really, really successful uh, at being able to, to do that. And sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes the hospice experience can be a positive one and, you, and their nurses are, are right on task and everything goes well many times it doesn't and it's sort of luck of the draw yeah unless you have somebody uh, you know unless you have real advocates and people who are and he got great care this was just a situation of the state he was in at the end he didn't need to go that far down yeah i wish we had had other options other yeah that being said 
What have you learned from your patients about dying? Have you learned stuff? Have, has anything happened or some crazy stories where you're like, wow, I'm going to write a book one day? Of- yeah, well, there is a book in the works. There, and, and the book is, is partly to, to talk about some of the stories, to honor some of the people that I've been with. I have, a, I think, you know, I, I recently started a, a podcast to be able to share some of the experiences uh, that, and to talk with others about how to, how to do this really well. And a cup, one of the podcasts was with a man named Bill Andrews, who was a surfing legend yeah. in San Diego. He was an amazing man, had ALS, decided to use the End of Life Option Act. I was able to uh, help, help him and his family. He's got three sons who were, it was a really beautiful, challenging uh, experience. But I was able to interview him four days before he ended his life. And we wow. had this incredible conversation. And he was so brave and so determined to go out on his terms. And he wasn't, you know, he didn't feel like a victim. He wasn't angry. He had a great life. He had a loving family. He realizes that his illness and his situation actually brought his family together. And they, and they worked as a, as a team to support him through his illness and then support him in being able to have his, uh, his choice of how his life, how and when his life was going to end. And then a, a couple months later, I, I had a, a podcast with his three sons, which mm. was phenomenal. And they got to talk about what the process was like watching their father go through this illness, um, the challenges that came with that, identifying the best way for him to you know, get access to end-of-life option, setting up this beautiful ceremony this day before he he ended his life with all the grandkids and some activities that were just beautiful and then what it was like for them to be the ones mixing up the medication and and being there with him um so i learned i I learned a lot from every patient what about the crossing over more on the spiritual side of things have you seen Anything, anything happening no well yeah no. i just i remember the steve jobs yeah. story when steve jobs was crossing over and all you heard was wow 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 and i'm thinking morphine morphine yeah. morphine yeah that's kind of what i'm getting at is Got there it. that's the cynic in me but i wanna i wanna hear something well me too you know i'm always looking for it i love <laughs> i love the books that uh I'm, I'm a i'm a real i'm a real i crave information about what happens in the transition I, tr- I I've seen enough people who are like near near death and I truly believe that they're they have visions that they have connection with uh, you know energy beings on the other side that that it's not just medic drug hallucinations that I have not actually seen anything that I can confidently say was a was a um, Sort of a coming from another realm, right? Or happening as as patients were transitioning, always watching for it. Yeah. Uh, but the the medication that they get is is it so quickly takes them from talking and interacting and sharing their feelings and their love with their family to boom to being deeply deeply asleep. It's a matter of you know three or four minutes. It's amazing. Usually. And occasionally there there is some speaking during during that. But it's they get so deep quickly that it's it's different than somebody having a natural transition. It's much more. It, I don't. So it's, I can't say it's much more peaceful because I have never experienced it. But in in observing it, right, this to me seems like the way to go. If I had to choose how I was going to die, I would go this route because it's so it's so fast and 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 I think dignified. Now, when it comes to the patients or the people in this position, do they tend to be religious, atheists? It's across the board. Yeah. It's across the board. I would say that the people who are extremely religious from any uh, particular brand of religion are less likely to take this option. I would figure. I know that Catholicism is, you know, not bans it, but it's, it's... not allowed in in Catholicism, the Judaism, uh, Buddhism. I think a lot of religions. If you're very, if you're pure, and going to follow the tenets of that religion uh, to the letter, would not 
be open to this. Sure. There's a lot of people who may still be religious, but when it comes down to it, at the final in the final countdown, they realize that their personal choice and their and and their uh, you know dignity trumps the religion. Most of the people are are probably not on not terribly religious. I there tends to be, and this I think this has been shown in all the different places where uh, assisted death is legal, there's a higher percentage of people who are educated and um, have been out kind of in, in the working world. What I, what I find is that it's people who have been, have had more control in general that they've they've controlled things in their life yeah see and, that's what i think it comes down to up. that's funny you say that word control because that's all the entire time we've been talking that's all i've been thinking about is that word yeah a lot of these people they they have lost control their illness their disease has taken the control away from them this is how they get it back they have no the only the only way that they'd been able to to have control was by making decisions of how to treat their illness yeah and and sometimes they've made those decisions uh, because there, there didn't seem to be another option and they've suffered for it. There are people who probably continued receiving treatment, especially with respect to cancer, when it, it wasn't really what they wanted to do. They felt pressured. Yeah. There wasn't another option. They didn't have any other con- you know, way to control things. And in some cases, it's just this is this is the way it's done. The doctors say this is this is now you have this, and it's at this stage, and this is the treatment, and and people often don't question it. Of course, we're going to do that, and and a lot of times they 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 suffer the consequences. The other thing that I've recognized um, is that the people who are choosing this option, especially when they're getting ready to take the medication are people who have a what I call a physical spiritual mismatch. Their physical condition is declining or has declined so so much, but their spirit is still very intact. Mm. And they're they're un they're unable to reconcile that. When their physical body gets to the point where it can't do the things that you want it to do or you're having so much pain or you're so debilitated but your spirit is still strong. A lot of people say, you know what? Screw it. Screw it. I'm not in control, I'm man. Done. What did you do? I, I know we've been talking the last several years. What was your initial practice? Like when you first got out of med school, were you in a different yeah. field of yeah, medicine so I was altogether? Trained, my, my, my training was in emergency medicine, and I spent 20 years as an emergency physician. Okay. So working in different uh, part, around different parts of the, of the country, of the world, actually, um, as an ER doc. So, Which is fascinating, too, because you're seeing people in very vulnerable situations in an emergency room. Yeah. And, you're, and you're basically your focus is on saving lives. Lives in that 11th hour. That's, Whenever. Yeah. And for the beginning of my career, it was, that, was, that was all I wanted to do was save lives. And, it, and I didn't really pay attention to the quality of the life I was saving. We were, we were trained Systematically, to go in right. and, and keep people alive. And, and then... If and then we would if they if they were really critical or if they if they were at a point where everything was too compromised or challenging, well then that might that that would sort of unfold when they were in the intensive care unit or right. in the hospital. We were just designed to save people, and and I, I had uh, about ten years into my career, I had my my first experience with a different kind of death. And that was with actually a friend who was 32 and dying of melanoma. And he didn't have, he was a surfer, snowboarder, just a, a great guy, free spirit. And this melanoma had been removed five years ago. They told him he was fine, go on with your life. And then five years later, it came back and it was everywhere. And he, he died after a few months. Um, but he didn't have a, a doctor because he had otherwise been previously healthy, so I started helping him out as his physician, and then as he got sicker, we brought in a hospice team. So that was my first exposure to hospice mm. and what that kind of care looks like. And his, you know, his wife was 29, his kids were five, three, and one. It was a really intense, difficult That's brutal. time, 
But it was also a very beautiful time because we were able to give him so much comfort. And I, and I learned a lot from him. His name's Darren Farwell. His wife is one of my closest friends in the world. His kids are oh, now beautiful. adults. And, and she has built an amazing company called UV Skins, which is UV protective clothing to keep How people cool. from being exposed to the dangers of the sun. It's amazing. It is amazing. She's, it, it's an incredible story. And I was there with Darren when he died. I watched him say goodbye to his little boys. And Damn. he had this beautiful, peaceful death when he was previously so afraid of what it was going to be like because his lungs were filled up with tumor and fluid. But Darren was my introduction. That's where the seed got planted. Mixed with your experiences in the ER right. makes perfect sense. And then I had sense. this epiphany telling me that I was, you know, this was my, my route. And I kind of followed that guidance. Actually, the next day after I had that, that um, epiphany, I met a hospice nurse who became a dear friend of mine, introduced me to the hospice and, and palliative care world. And kind of that's how, the, that's how I'm sort of moving into that realm. My last question for you, and this has just been such a fantastic conversation, is um, is about the word fear. That's something I struggle with a lot, and I've struggled my entire life with fear. I'm sure this will be a could be a topic for a whole nother mm-hmm. podcast. But in a broad stroke, what is the root of fear? Why do I live a fearful existence, and what is the best way for a person who does? to crack through and break through on the other side. <laughs> I think the root of fear is is a uh, is looking at something in the in the future with a uh, and believing believing something that's not true, right? Being being somehow somehow believing that that things will be different in a way that is that you don't have control over, that you're uncomfortable with, it's it's essentially it's a false belief, and you've probably heard that. It's kind yes. of cliche. Yes. Like fear is, uh, um, I can't remember what that what that acronym was, but it's it's essentially a belief in something that's not true, but it's but it's an unshakable belief, and it's not it's not necessarily rational. Right. Right. And so what happens is there's there's this sort of learn response. You have a thought, you believe that thought to be true, and and immediately, it creates a physical response. A defense mechanism. That's that defense mechanism. So, so the physical response is something that people become uncomfortable with because ultimately it causes your heart to race. It causes people to, to um, you know, just get uncomfortable. And of course, as we've all learned, there was, you know, there there were um, benefits to that back when we were running away from tigers and right. you know and and evolutionarily there is a benefit to being able to have that physiologic response but it no longer serves us but it's still there and i think when people have a thought they it triggers a physical response which then they associate it's it's, it's uncomfortable and they don't feel like they have control over it yep so so many times the way to help break those break the fears is breaking that pattern and and in, in my experience, the way to do that is to develop a mindfulness type practice, meditation, mindfulness, yeah. breathing, where where you 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 have to get disciplined to do this for a period of time, and then after after a while, you've you've learned how to get your body into a different state, get your 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 mind into a different state where you feel like you now have control over the responses and you're not you're not necessarily um a victim of those random thoughts Mm, kind of like a false sense of control you're almost like tricking yourself Uh, well yeah i I mean eventually it becomes it it becomes natural natural, right you have to break the pattern right fear the fear response is a pattern and it's a habit and we we all have the ability to break habits. It's not necessarily easy, right? And it takes and it takes commitment. But there, it's it's. I think the first thing that people have to understand, and it, and this goes kind of deep. I I, I studied um, this sort of philosophy called the three principles, which is 
teaches about universal thought, universal mind, and universal consciousness. And it's something that you might want to, you know, check out. I'm already in. But the but the universal thought is the, one of the coolest concepts I've ever come across. And it it's basically that there's a whole there's thoughts circulating out there, and and they don't have any form. They're just formless potential thoughts, and we all have access to them. And because of certain experiences, things that that we see, that we think, or you know, that we feel, we we give form, these thoughts take form and they come into our awareness and we take ownership of them. We now think that this is a thought that's in my mind, it, it's come before and and so it, it must be true. You believe it. It's This is because I think this, this is who I am or this is how I think and, and, that, can, and that starts to control us. Once we understand that that thought is not your thought, it's the universe's thought. It's a thought that's out there. It comes in. You choose whether to hold on to it or just to let it pass. And once you feel confident, you understand that, you you are no longer controlled by random thoughts. Yeah, you don't do what I do and wrestle those guys for four to six hours. Yeah. And and, and then you come the, out on the, the other side. The awareness of it yeah. is, is the first step. I appreciate your time, and we certainly have – all the avenues on our blog and surrounding this podcast to uh, to uh, find you and locate you. But for those who are listening just in audio form, best way to find you, Dr. So Bob. My my web uh, website is uh, integratedmdcare.com uh, or Dr. Bob Uslander, D-R-B-O, you know, my name, Dr. Bob Uslander.com. Um, yeah, and, and, and I, my, I'd like to, I like to talk to people who are, trying to find the right answers. I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation pretty much with anybody who's who's looking for support and trying to find out what the right steps to take are to, you know, to get those needs met. Man, it's compelling stuff, and yeah. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Chris. It's great talking with you. There you have it. That's, uh, that's Dr. Bob, and we've got all his information up in the blog. He mentioned it there, and uh, certainly... Appreciate his time and thank you to your openness to the uh, the subject. The next one, as I said, will be lighter, I promise. <laughs> Otherwise, I wanted to also mention as we sign off here, we do have the Patreon and uh, it's patreon.com forward slash U-Y-E-W. If you're a patron, certainly appreciate your monthly subscription fee. It helps so much, uh, especially uh, the first year of this operation, man, everything helps. And a special nod, as always, to Anna and Tim, the owners and operators of Mariposa Ice Cream, with locations in Normal Heights, Oceanside, Temecula, the best, hands down, homemade ice cream on the planet, and uh, they're huge patrons on our Patreon platform, and uh, it goes noted and recognized every month. So please support Mariposa Ice Cream. Ah, uh, the peanut butter and jelly. Oh, it's my favorite flavor. Okay, until next time, be well. Much aloha. Take care of yourself. I appreciate you so much. <laughs>